reading from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 12, and verse 16. You can follow along in your Bible or on screen as I read the passage aloud for us. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, this uh, topic of love and this um, scripture of love uh, probably comes with all, all sorts of uh, emotions. If we, were, if we open ourselves up to feel them, probably some pain and even uh, maybe some joy. All the things that have been done in the name of love that have been so hurtful and damaging in people's lives sometimes, oftentimes, leave us with deep wounds that are really hard to mend and to heal. And so, God, we pray, I pray, as we enter into this, uh, this series on love, this vision of love, uh, God, that you would teach and restore and heal. This is what love ultimately does, according to John that it goes after us to redeem us. So begin that work now in Jesus' name, amen. There is uh, this very old legend, uh, an old story, uh, about one of Jesus' closest followers. His name is uh, John. And he was a disciple uh, who was not afraid of touch or affection. Actually, at the night of Jesus' betrayal, he could be found leaning back on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Uh, you know the Last Supper, they, it wasn't like the painting where they're all just sitting on one side of the table. Um, it was on the floor, and the, the table would have been really low, and they would have had pillows, and they would have been lounging. I don't know if you've ever um, had a dinner where you're eating so much that you kind of just do like this thing, like you just kind of, you, if, you, if you had the courage, you would just fall in someone's lap and just lay there. John had that courage. And so after dinner, he just like fell back on Jesus to where his head was in his, in, on Jesus' chest, like really close to where Jesus' heart was beating. John was not afraid of touch, physicality. He reminds me a lot of my son, Nowen, who uh, has, has to have some sort of body part on you when he's around you. Um, either his finger around your finger uh, his hand on your chest, sometimes he'll just go like do this, and his hands there, just, nope, this is, this is where it's gonna be right now. Um, or his leg draped over, he's a really touchy, little touchy guy, and, and I really love that. Now, the, the legend of John goes like this. When John was getting very old, um, he would still travel to different churches, 
and teach and encourage people who are coming into the church, who are coming to faith in Jesus. But at the end of his life, after all the wear and tear on his body as he got older, he would still travel, but, um, but people had to um, pick up his frail body and carry him to the church. And as they did, as the church was going on and when it was his time to deliver the teaching, they would pick up John's frail body and put him right in the front, right in the center, wherever it was, and John would just kind of lay there. And as he, as he, as he laid there, um, this long silence would build. Like, what is this very old, wise apostle who has seen and touched and heard and was befriended by Jesus, what will he say? And legend has it that John would finally open his mouth and he spoke a one-sentence sermon. Dear children, let us love one another for love comes from God. And then they would scoop him up and they would take him out. Now, I don't know if that's le the legend is true or not, um, but John was the oldest, was the only disciple who died from old age. Everyone else was martyred. So I love thinking that it was true. Because if you know and follow Jesus for a very long time, if you explore all the theology there is to explore and do all the service in God's name there is to do and lead with all the energy that God gives you, and you live a very long life, I hope at the end of this long life, you, the whole message that you would carry would boil down to one sentence, and I hope that, that sentence would sound something like, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Actually, the radical claim of Christianity comes right after these words from John in 1 John. And here it is, here's the radical claim of Christianity. God is love. Not that God has love, not that God shows love, or that God is loving, but God is love itself. And in some great sense, the entirety of things that we Christians believe flows from this claim. It's a belief that distinguished Christianity from much of the ancient imaging of the divine, whether that be in the form of the gods of antiquity or the philosophical form of reflection on the source of universal order. But even so, today, right now, to say that God is love is not at all that revolutionary. It's not that radical, and it's really, honestly, not that compelling. I mean, it's cute, it's endearing, maybe, but there's way too much baggage around this word love, and there's way, way too much baggage around Christianity in general for the statement that the Christian God is the God of love to have any sort of deep impression. Which means, and I mean this with all sincerity, we have some work to do, both in uncovering and uncovering what in the world it means that God is love, and some massive work to do around knowing this love that is God, and therefore what it means to love like God loves. And the reason, someone's with me today, I love this. <laughs> and the reason I wanna start our year this way is it's during this time that we typically do a vision series, reminding our church of our vision and the mission of our church. And our vision statement goes something like this. Actually, it's exactly like this, here it is. A community following Jesus, seeking renewal in our city. And we say we are, or we strive to be, a community of disciples of Jesus. And we are a community of disciples of Jesus together with God, seeking the renewal of all things, that is, 
the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in San Francisco, on earth as it is in heaven. That's the vision. But what's the motivation? What's the engine that's moving us toward this vision? What's the soil that this vision is growing in? What's the great big why behind this vision? And not just that, probably most importantly, what for? What's the aim, the telos in Greek, the, the, the purpose of why we even bother to do this vision? And the answer to all of that is love. But again, we got work to do because that is so anticlimactic. I said, it's love, and you're like, oh, I like the vision part, but the love, it's just, it's so general. It's so vague even because what in the world does that mean? People, companies, organizations, influencers, leaders use this word all the time. This word is ubiquitous. It can even be trivial, but we still use it. Why do we still use it? Because at the bottom of it all, no matter how abused or overused the word love is, love is what we all intuitively know we need, and it's what we all really are looking for behind all of our pursuits and endeavors, whether they be romantic or professional, educational, religious, or relational. So, what is this love that is God? If God is love, what is this love that is God? It's probably important to start with where John in our text starts with. When he defines love, he starts with what love is not. And I think this is really important. It's probably important to start here. First John 4, 8 through 10, verses 8 through 10. Whoever, John writes, whoever does not know God, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him, and this is love. And here's John making sure, because there's all sorts of words for love in Greek. There's all sorts of ways that we love. And John knows it. There's all these competing loves. And John's like, I need to make sure that you understand what this love is. This is love, not that we love, or in other words, not our love. That's not how John defines love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. John says that the love that God is, is not our love. It's not human love. It's not the love we feel and we experience as people walking this earth loving and desiring to be loved. Even though the love we do have can be so pure to us, so innocent, so committed, and so rugged. The love that is God is not our human love. However, our human love, the way we experience and know love, moves us in the direction of the love that is God. What do I mean by that? When you say you love something and you mean it, let's say, for me, I love Panda Express. My love for Panda Express is well-documented, and I own it, and you can't argue me out of it. I love it. I love it. I love Ashley, my wife. I love her. Yesterday, we celebrated 29 years together dating. 29 years. I also love my kids. I don't know, uh, uh, we're having a third, by the way, in May. I don't know if we can get into this, but. So that love is expanding, right? That love's expanding. I also love Golf. Actually, I'm going to stop there because I can, I'm an editing am seven. I can lift a billion things that I love. New things that I just started loving recently. I just love, I love to love things. Okay. My point is this. 
Do I mean the same thing when I say I love my wife, I love my friends, I love Panda, I love fashion, I love SF? Do I mean the same things? And when John says God is love, is he saying that God is the feeling I have towards all these things? The answer is no. But my love and your love for these things can send us in the general direction of the love that is God. Thomas Aquinas, the great 13th century philosopher and theologian, speaks of love in terms of an activity within all of us. Love is an activity within all of us. He says this, love is naturally the first act of the will and appetite. Frederick Christian, Christian um, uh, Bauerschmidt says in his really great book on love, he interprets Aquinas saying this. This is how he interprets Aquinas. To love is to be drawn toward something by desiring it or to delight in something by possessing it. To love, the way that we love, the way that love works, is to be drawn towards something that we desire by desiring it, or to delight in something that we have, that we, that we can have or you can possess. Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, also says that love is our attitude towards the object of our love. It's the way that we, we treat it, our attitude towards it. He says this, to love is the choice to will the good of the other. To will the good of the other. Okay, so putting all these together, this is what we can say. Love is the desire for and delight in something or something's goodness. Does that make sense? Love is the desire for and delight in someone or something's goodness. Love is that desire that delights in the pure existence of the thing that is love, loved and wants that thing that is loved to flourish. When I say I love Panda Express, I am saying that I delight in its pure existence in reality. <laughs> I am so glad this place, this restaurant exists and I want its existence to flourish. Actually, we were, I just, we had to, just took our kids down to Southern California to go to Knott's Berry Farm and we were there with my family. My sister sent me a picture of a Panda Express in Knott's Berry Farm. And I saw that and my heart went, like fluttered. And I'm like, I'm so glad that exists in this place. And what that means though is I want the, I want Pan Express to flow. I, want, I mean, I want the food always to be fresh and hot and I want the place to be clean and people to be working there to be happy and well paid and glad I visit their restaurant. That's what I want. I want to flourish. I want to walk in like, I love this place. This place, well lit, everything's fresh. When I say I love golf, I'm saying that I delight in the pure existence of the thing that golf is. I'm glad it exists and I want it to flourish. When I say I love Ashley, my wife, I am saying that I delight in the pure existence of Ashley. I am glad she's alive. I'm glad I get time with her and I get to live with her and raise a family with her and I delight in her flourishing, what it feels like sometimes even more than my own flourishing. Are you with me? This is what love it. It wants, it loves the thing and it loves that it exists and it wants that thing to flourish. Okay, are all these the same kind and quality of love though? No. To say, I love orange chicken and delight and desire for it to flourish doesn't mean the same thing as saying I love my wife and delight and desire for her to flourish. Because orange chicken exists for my delight, my consumption, 
my taste buds, my appetite. And for it to flourish, it has to be the best possible version of itself so I can have maximum delight. I recently ate at a Panda Express and their orange chicken was too spicy. I was not flourishing. <laughs> it was not flourishing. Nobody was flourishing. I almost wanted to go up and go, you put a little bit too much chili oil in this batch and you need to know that. According to me, this, this is... Now, the same cannot and should not be said about my wife, Ashley. She does not exist for my consumption or my pleasure. My love for her and what it means to delight in her flourishing as a human is way different. But the way they are the same in all cases is that to love something is to wish that it would be what it is in its fullest sense possible. Does that make sense? That it would be what it is. We're glad that it exists and we want that to be its full self. Now we're, we're kind of on the right path here. To, to love is to wish that the object of our love would flourish by being what it is. Recently, um, there's a friend of mine who actually goes to this church who's a, a chef, actually a Michelin star chef, and we had a date where a group of, small group of friends of ours all made, we made this like plan like months in advance, like three months in advance. All of us are gonna go to Cheesecake Factory. And I'm telling you way too much about my eating habits right now, but. <laughs> and we were so, we would count, we'd text each other, count down the days till we all went. And we went, and I'm sitting across the table for my friend and he starts ordering and he's ordering all the bangers, everything, just all the best parts of Cheesecake Factory and they all come and we're eating it, we're enjoying, we're like delighting that this exists in the world. And I turn to my friend, I'm like, how, how, help me understand how a Michelin star chef could be here right now and be delighting in this. And he said, there was a time I didn't. So I, I used to love it, and then I was getting into cooking and food and all this stuff. I was too kind of pretentious for it, and I, I, was, I was hating on it, but I love it. Again, here's why. Because it is fully what it is. It doesn't try to be anything else. He, those are his words. It's fully what it is. I mean, we ordered um, Tex-Mex, Texas egg rolls. I mean, who does that? I mean, what, what is, I don't even know what that is. Like a burrito, is an egg roll, is it a little bit of both, whatever. And, and it, but it's fully itself. Cheesecake Factory is fully itself. He goes, I love it because it doesn't try to be anything else. It's not trying to be a high-end restaurant. It's, not trying, it's, trying to, it's fully itself, and that's why I delight in it. Okay. To love something is to love that that thing exists and to, to fully delight and want its flourishing to be completely what it is. Now, John writes, this is love, not that we love. Okay, so how does our love differ because that's love, how does our love differ? Where does the path we're on begin to break off or end or do whatever it is that paths do when, you, when they no longer lead you in the right direction? How, how if that's love and, and God shares that love and points in the right direction, how does God's love change? And this is, this is the point where we have to talk about cilantro. <laughs> I do not love cilantro. I do not like cilantro. I do not delight in the existence of cilantro. I don't want it to be what it is. Actually, the more it is what it is, the more I hate it. The fresher it is, the more leaves and stems it has, the more robust the flavor, I hate it even more. I think cilantro was created sometime around when the thorns were created after the fall of humanity. It's there in the Hebrew, I'm sure of it, you should just, it's there, it's just thorns. Okay, 
this is, this, this, but this brings out an important point about love. My love, our loves, are typically based on some goodness that we see in the things we love. I love my wife because I'm drawn to her beauty, her sense of humor, her nurturing love, her kindness and openness to others. I love orange chicken because I'm drawn to its salty, sweet, slightly spicy, chewy goodness that also has 14 grams of protein, just saying. <laughs> that's my love. That's, that's our love. But that's not God's love. God's love is not attracted to are drawn to any goodness in us at all. Now wait, before you go, is that because of total depravity? Is that because there's nothing good in us because we're just so wicked and gross? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. God's love is not drawn to goodness because God's love creates goodness in the things he loves. There's a huge difference. God is love, and I'm, we're gonna dive into that next week. God is love, and therefore, his very self as being love, his very self emanates love from his being and creates goodness in the things he makes. He doesn't see goodness, he makes goodness. So go back to the creation story in Genesis one. God creates, and he calls it good. Why is it good? Because it was made from him from love, from his expression of who he is, and the things that he make, makes are good. His, this was made from his like divine being, that is love. His love creates goodness. His love creates what is good. You can say this, God's love is active rather than reactive. We typically see, judge, and then love. God creates the creature that is the object of his love. Augustine wrote in Confessions to God, he said, we see these things you have made because they exist, but they exist because you see them. You can swap out love there for see. We love these things you have made because they exist, but they exist because you love them. So when the scriptures say that our love is not the love that God, is not the love that is God, that is it's not defined by the way that we love, what it's saying is that when we say we love, it goes something like this. I love this thing because I'm glad it exists, which is beautiful. That is a beautiful thing. I'm not taking anything away from that. That is beautiful. But God's love is this. Uh, because I'm glad, you exist. We say, because you exist, I'm glad. God says, because I'm glad, you exist. The very fact that you exist, that there is life and beauty and joy despite all that we humans keep trying to do to destroy one another, the reason why beauty and goodness and love still exist is because God is love. Again, Bauer says, to say that God is love it's to say that God is not simply the kind of thing that loves, but is the activity of loving itself. Not our human act of love, not even the sum total of such acts, but an activity that is prior to and the source of our human being and knowing and desiring. An act of love so vast and deep that it brings forth creatures in all their diversity, ravines and rivers, sassafras and sequoias, bacteria and border collies. 
To say that God is love is to say that God is a benevolence, a well-wishing, a kindness of such infinite scope that it draws beloved creatures out of nothingness into being. The God who is love, as St. Paul says, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So our love, the way that we love, gets us on the right path. It, it, It aims us in the right direction, but there's a lot more. John writes that the God who is love also demonstrates his love to us. Like it wasn't enough that he created us in love, God takes it upon himself to show us explicitly his love. How? Look at verses nine and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him, that we might live through him. That's huge. This is how God demonstrated his love. He sent his son that we might live through him. Then he says this, this is love, not your love, but God's love. His love and the fact that his love, in his love he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when John focuses on the love that is God, he says three things. And these aren't three parts, like three points of a sermon by the way, you're like, why are you bringing up points now? This is kinda late in the game. These are just three things, here they are. The love that is God is not our human love. That's the first thing John points out. The love that is God is not our human love. The second thing John points out is the love that is God is shown by God becoming human so that we might live through God. It's the second way God demonstrates his love. And the third way is the love that is God is shown by God dying for our sins. What's important here to ask as you look at this list is, what is the love that is God focused on? The love that is God in this list, what is it, what is it aimed at? What is it focused on? How is it demonstrated and therefore how does God want us to see and experience the love that is God? First, the love that is God is aimed at relationship. That's the first thing that we see here in, in, in John's writing. The the love that is God is aimed right at relationship. God demonstrates his love by becoming relatable. Flesh, on our level, takes on our flesh, which is what we celebrate today during Christmas season and today during Epiphany. This, that we behold the Christ child, that God himself took on flesh. Now what is it, this is a kind of a tangent, what does it say about, about, Humanity, human flesh, that God himself can, can live in, the, the divine can live into the human and it not destroy humanity, but that our bodies could actually receive the divine. That is the mystery of the incarnation. You're telling me that God took up flesh and not just flesh, but a, 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 an infant born in, into basically poverty in the middle of, kind of nowhere, like this, God can do, God does that? This is, the, this is what we behold during Christmas season. We behold this, that God becomes flesh. But, but why does God become flesh? God becomes flesh so that not only does it become relatable, but that we would have union with him, that we would have relationship with him. Jesus, at the end of his life, uh, John, records a prayer of Jesus in John 17. 
And Jesus prays for himself, and then he prays for the disciples, the, 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 the 12, and then he prays for us. Reality San Francisco, right here in this room, he prays for us. He prays for all of those who will believe the message of the gospel through these disciples. 2,000 years later, it's us in this room. This is what he prays. My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as, I, as you have loved me. The mystery, the mystery of God becoming human is astounding. But what Jesus is praying here is the real mystery, the real astounding part is that humanity is being taken up into the divine. Yes, there's a great mystery that God becomes flesh, but the, the even crazier mystery that, that Paul trips, that all the writers trip out on is that humanity is brought into the divine and made one union with God. God demonstrated his love, how? That he sent his son so that we might live through him. It's not just a wonder of God's love to descend to us and further on the cross, because not only does he descend as a human, but he goes all the way down to the cross, but that God descends so that we might ascend into the divine life with God. That's what love is, according to God. That he would descend and descend to the cross, and then as he ascends, brings us, humanity, to ascend into the divine life. So God's love, according to John, is about relationship. It's about right relationship. All true love is about right relationship. Secondly, the other thing God's love is focused on here, according to John, is our greatest and deepest need. Just as we learn, God's love isn't focused on our beauty or our attraction or our accomplishments, meaning he doesn't love us for what we do or what we look like or what we have. God's love isn't focused on those things. But in a very humbling way, his love is focused on our chasm, on the gap between the good he made us to be and where we are now. That's where his love is at. His love is focused right at that chasm between the good he made us to be, the potential of living in the divine life with him through Jesus Christ, and where we are now. Just think about this for a second. If God's love creates goodness, that's, it emanates from his, love emanates from God and creates the good, and the good that God creates becomes marred and broken and destroyed, wouldn't that same love desire to go out and make what was once good but now damaged good again, whole again, restored, redeemed, to take away the sin and fulfill our need for redemption? The forgiveness of sin is at the heart of God's love and is the clearest expression of God's love. Your forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. And what John is trying to say is that we cannot truly love God, and this is, again, this is a whole other sermon that we will get into. We cannot truly love God or even love other people until we have received God's redemptive love offered in Christ. John says, actually, the only way to love is, is to receive the love of God. That's the only way to love. 
until we experience the forgiveness of our sin based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself and brought into his love, we don't know how to love. Why? Why can't we know love or truly love until we confess sin and, and receive redemption? Why? Well, there's a couple different ways to answer this. There's the theological way. The theological way to answer this is because there's a, a chasm to bridge that we can't cross, that we can't close, that we're blind to it, we're dead. Those kind of words used in scripture. Sin has separated us from God. We rebelled and turned away, each of us to our own ways. That's a very real and true theological answer. That's one way to answer it. Another way would be a, a relational, maybe even a psychological way to answer it. Why can't we know love until we receive forgiveness and know the love of God? Because only when you give, your, when you give away your pride, when you give away your control, when you give away your manipulation, can you really be received just as you are and loved right there? Vulnerable and open. And it's at that point you actually truly know love and can love in return. What, what John says here is that you can't love until you're born of God, why? Because kind begets kind. God, what kind is God? Love. Who are the people that are born of God? Love. How in the world do you become a person of love? You be in God. And when you're in God, you're born into his family. You've become a son or daughter of God through redemption, through Jesus Christ. At that point, then you are, God is at this process by his spirit, because his spirit is also a part of this whole, this whole verse, this whole section. Through the spirit, he he makes you into who he is as he pulls you into the divine life. Kind begets kind. The love that is God is a love that creates the good and goes after, in love, the good he created when it is marred and broken and destroyed and lost. When the good he created is in need, he goes toward that need and all of that at the infinite cost to himself in Christ. That is love. We have a lot more to explore about love. And it might take a lifetime, it probably should take a lifetime to be honest. But my hope for you, church, as we get into this series, this vision of love, my hope for you this year is as we move into what will be a tumultuous year in our nation, and in our world. My hope is that as this world might feel like it's getting a little bit darker and darker, that the light of God's love would meet us, shine through us, his church, as we love each other and love this city and love the world really, really well. That's my prayer. Would you stand with me and pray? Mm -hmm.